Too often, we take our modern economy for granted. We live in a time of great innovation and material prosperity, but the abundant economy that we enjoy was never inevitable. We did not approach it steadily throughout history. We've all seen that famous chart, how GDP per capita was pitifully stagnant until the late 18th century, at which point it took off, raising living standards throughout the Western world. The question is, what caused this to happen? What took it so long? And what was it about 18th century Northern and Western Europe that allowed this wealth explosion to occur? To explore these questions, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Stephen Davies. Stephen is the head of education at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London and was previously at George Mason University's Institute for Humane Studies. He's the author of 2003's Empiricism and History, as well as the recently released The Wealth Explosion, The Nature and Origins of Modernity. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, glad to be here. Um, the book looks at the issue of how the modern, dynamic, innovative economy really came about. Uh, so let me ask first about where it came about. The, the wealth explosion occurred first in Northwestern Europe. Why there of all places? Well, that's a very good question because one of the things that you have to realize is that for most of the history of the world, Northwest Europe is actually a bit of a backwater. The actual hub of the world economy for most of history, the wealthiest, most dynamic part of it, uh, is the lands around the Indian Ocean, uh, and in particularly, Eastern and Southern China. So if you had been observing the Earth from galactic space, you would have to say, well, why does it start in Northern France, uh, the Low Countries, and in Great Britain, rather than somewhere else? And I think the answer is that relatively recently in history, uh, something happened in that part of the world or in Europe more generally that gave it a quality of dynamism that other parts of the world uh, lacked. And in particular, what it meant was that when people did try to introduce innovation, it wasn't possible for that innovation to be choked off so what were the particular factors that were sort of in place in Northwestern Europe that perhaps were not in place elsewhere? Well, uh, just to reframe that slightly, the, the, if you look at the course of history, what you find is that the kind of dynamism and innovation that marks the modern economy appears to get going several times in various places. In the Mediterranean lands uh, in the second century AD, for example, in the Middle East in the eighth or ninth century, and most notably in China in the 12th and 13th centuries. But crucially, those uh, earlier episodes do not last. What happens is that the fire of innovation, if you will, doesn't keep going, it gradually flickers out. So in Northwestern Europe, what happens is that there's something there that prevents that from happening, that allows the innovation to continue. And what I think the crucial thing is, is this, Northwestern Europe, or indeed Western Europe in general, is from about the mid 17th century onwards, marked by a system of division into competing fairly powerful sovereign states. Everywhere else in the world, the military revolution of the late Middle Ages had produced very large hegemonic empires, which ruled a large part of the planet's surface. Whereas in Europe, you have as an equivalently large area divided up into about a dozen states of varying degrees of power, but with none of them 
in a dominant position to impose their authority on the rest. And what this does is to change the incentives facing rulers. It means that rulers in Europe, unlike rulers in Europe's own past or historically in the contemporary parts of the world, do not have an incentive to stop change or reverse it. Instead, they actually have an incentive to encourage innovation because that gives you a head start over your competitors. And if you don't encourage innovation, uh, the results are pretty unpleasant, as the classic example of Poland shows, where an entire state actually vanishes from the map, thanks to the partitions. So some people will say, uh, they'll, they'll, if you mention some of these other, um, you know, sort of false starts, yes. uh, you know, why, you know, why, why did we see an industrial revolution begin, you know, in the ancient Greeks or, or ancient Rome yeah, yeah. Or, or, or China? So do you, do you think there were sort of these other, what other necessary elements were in place in some of these earlier eras, but, uh, but, but what stopped them? I mean, what, uh, you know, what, what were the things that, yeah, I mean, you mentioned how, you know, Europe is, Europe is divided up. Had it not been divided up, what what were the sorts of actions that would have been taken or had been taken in the past to sort of put out those those early fires of progress? Uh, I think the best way of thinking about that is to look at the uh, other case of China, because China in the so-called Song Dynasty period, when it's ruled by that particular family, from the middle of the 10th century through to the late 13th century, uh, is the classic counterpoint, if you will. In that period, China has all of the other conditions that you need for a dynamic, innovative economy. It's got private property, it has the rule of law, it has uh, complex financial institutions, it has double entry bookkeeping, uh, it has a whole range of institutions, as the economists call them, uh, plus an enormously extended trade network and highly monetized economy. And all this produces lots and lots of innovation, so much so that by the middle of the 13th or the middle of the 13th or late 12th century, China is at the same level of technological and economic development as 18th century Europe, uh, to put this into perspective. The difference, the critical difference, is that China is dominated by a single state. It is a single state. And what happens is that the whole of China is conquered by the Mongols uh, at the end of the 13th century. Now, the Mongols do not themselves actually change much, but that's an enormous psychological shock for the Chinese uh, elite and the Chinese mentality in general, if you will. And in 1368, the Mongols are thrown out by a rebellion by the Han Chinese, led by a man who becomes the Hongwu Emperor and founds the Ming Dynasty. And he and the Ming elite blame this catastrophe of conquest by the Mongols on the kind of innovative and open and mercantile society that the Song had had. And what they do is to quite deliberately and systematically uh, undo that. They quite consciously and knowingly look for things that will make China more conservative, less innovative, less dynamic. They actually go to the extent of scrapping and eliminating entire technologies. Most famously, uh, towards the end of the 15th century, they outlaw the building of ships that can sail out of sight of land. Uh, and this means that the Chinese merchant fleet, which had been one of the largest, the largest in the world up until then, is effectively eliminated. So 
that's an extreme example of what tended to happen in previous episodes, which was that elites would typically take action, often with the support, it has to be said, of large sections of society uh, to stop innovation from happening, to maintain things the way they were, and to prevent people from trying out new devices, new ways of doing things, new ways of conducting business. And you can see quite obviously why elites would typically do this, because why do they want change? They're at the top of the tree. Uh, what good is change for them? And in, to the extent that change does take place, it actually undermines their position. So they're likely to see it as threatening. Now, by contrast, in 18th century Europe, uh, although many elites, I suspect, would dearly have liked to do what Chinese emperors had done, or Abbasid caliphs as well before them, they can't do it because they're engaged in this enormous struggle basically for advantage with the other European states and in that struggle uh, encouraging innovation creates the sinews of war it creates the wealth the technology uh, that gives you an advantage uh, in the conflicts between the states that are taking place in Europe at that time. Did the uh, period of China which there was a lot of innovation happening and they had many institutions which would be familiar to people today did they have capitalism and you can define that anyway but did, did they have did they have something which we would recognize as as capitalism and again uh -huh. you, can, you can define it any way you want okay that depend that does depend on how you define the term capitalism if you mean um by capital if by capitalism you mean in very broad terms an economic system in which productive goods are privately owned in which uh, there is a free market with it, goods being produced for sale on a market, uh, and it's the results of those sales, the market forces that largely determine what is produced and when and where, then yes, China had capitalism at that time. And in fact, you could also say that you have capitalism in second century Rome or in the ninth century Abbasid Caliphate, a number of other places in world history. If on the other hand, by capitalism, you mean specifically the form that that kind of market economy takes in the last 200 years, which is one with, say, for example, a large and highly integrated capital market uh, and large firms and things of that sort, then no, they don't. But then for that matter, uh, you could say that Western civilization has only had capitalism in that form since roughly the 1850s. Uh, so it depends on whether you're talking about capitalism in the kind of very broad generic sense to mean essentially a market economy or the very specific kind of market economy that we've had in the last 150 years or so. Um, and sort of similarly, when when people talk about sort of the, the Industrial Revolution, they'll take it back to the uh, you know, late 1700s or, or early 1800s. If you're looking for sort of the real beginnings that led to a, a, you know, in the title of the book, The Wealth Explosion, where do you sort of begin? Where did we really start to begin to see the sorts of progress, scientific, innovative business progress that led um, to a great explosion of wealth? Uh, it begins really in the, in the case where it actually continues in Europe. It begins in the mid uh, 18th century, really. You do get certain key technological innovations uh, before then, such as the Newcomen steam engine. But as a number of historians like Joel Mocher have argued, and I think shown very clearly, the real innovations are the ones that begin after about 1750 and start to really accelerate after the 1770s. Uh, 
these aren't just technical innovations. It's not just a matter of machinery. Uh, there are also things like major breakthroughs in agricultural technique, uh, which includes things like, you know, more use of lime, use of different crops and the like. And also, crucially, differences and in innovations in the product, the management and organisation of the productive process. So even in parts of the economy that are not marked by significant innovation in, say, machinery, uh, what you often get is uh, innovations in the way the production process is organised, of the kind that Adam Smith talked about in his famous case of the pin factory. But it's all basically happening uh, in the British Isles in particular, but also in France, parts of Germany, parts even of Scandinavia, in the period roughly after 1750. And I wonder if people actually today have a good, good feel for what life was really like um, before sort of that leap forward um, that took place starting, you know, in the mid 1700s uh, um, and, and accelerated eventually in the 1800s. Uh, life in Western Europe, just a feel for what that was like and how that, and how that ended up changing over a period of 100, 150 years. Well, uh, life, not just in Western Europe, but anywhere on the planet, uh, was at pretty much the same level. That's one of the things to realize that throughout most of human history, there are not really significant differences in the living standards of ordinary people between one part of the world and another. And those living standards are by our uh, you know, level of expectations, shockingly low. The World Bank estimates that in 1800, more than 80% of the world's population was living in abject poverty. They were living on the then equivalent of $1.50 a day, which is what the World Bank reckons is a bare subsistence income. It's, it means you're just about surviving. So that was the normal state of affairs. Now, what did that mean in practical terms? Well, it means, for example, that it was almost impossible, even amongst royalty, to reach the age of 21 without losing a close sibling or a brother or sister, that is, or a parent to death from accident or illness. Uh, if you were born in a town, you had a one in three chance of dying before your first birthday. If you were born in the countryside, a one in four chance. If you're a woman and you became pregnant, then you had a one in four or one in five chance of dying in childbirth or immediately after childbirth from pure perial fever. So life was incredibly harsh and also extraordinarily restrained and constricted by comparison with what it is for people almost anywhere in the world today, not just in the wealthy parts of the world. Uh, one of the things to realize, for example, is that 90% of the population of most of the world until really the 19th century, were peasant farmers. That's what you did. 80-90% of the population of every country lived in the countryside in small villages and were overwhelmingly engaged in agriculture as their main uh, form of activity. So the range of options or opportunities open to people was extraordinarily restricted compared to what we have today. So I wouldn't go say it's like in the Thomas Hobbes sense, nasty, brutish and short, but certainly um, amazingly less comfortable and far less uh, varied and with far fewer opportunities than what we have today. At what point did people of that era begin to think that something had changed, that their lives were probably seemed to be very different from the lives of their parents and grandparents? Because even as the, um, 
uh, industrial revolution was going on. Uh, at first, it didn't seem like anything was changing. And obviously, a lot of people sort of missed, including Karl Marx, that something had changed. When did people really begin to sort of feel, you know, feel that they were in a new era? I think that really began to dawn on people in the 1830s and 1840s, um, about the time that the relatively young Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, for example. But he, of course, was only one of many, many observers at the time. That was when it first really dawned on people that what was happening was something quite unprecedented. Uh, and that is actually confirmed by the stats. So in 1851, Britain became the first country ever in the whole history of humanity to have a majority of its population living in towns and cities rather than in the countryside. And it was just about 10, 20 years before then that people really did begin to think, hey, something really spectacular is going on here. Um, you know, we, we tend to talk about the, the, you know, sort of inventions. And, and this year was a history of, of, of new and better things, you know, whether it's the, the steam engine or, or others. Uh, but it's also a, a sort of an intellectual process. I wonder if you could map out sort of the intellectual, cultural evolution that led um, to, to the wealth explosion. Well, uh, what you get is... Is it just the, enlight is it just the Enlightenment? Yes, it, it, yeah. it's, it's the body of ideas that we commonly call the Enlightenment, really. You could say, again, that as with the economic growth, there'd been intimations of this before, uh, but they'd never really got anywhere. It, they'd even been less of a flicker than there had been the case of economic innovation, really. So in the 18th century, what you start to get in uh, Western Europe, and quite widely in Western Europe at the time, actually, is a series of ideas about the relationship of human beings to the world around them. And in particular, you get two very important ideas. One is that what really matters uh, for many people is physical and psychological happiness in this world rather than the next world, the afterlife, if you will. And secondly, related to that, the idea that you could actually make things better, that it was possible to improve things, to reduce the amount of bad stuff in the world and increase the amount of good stuff in the world. In other words, the growth of a kind of optimism and a belief that uh, you could actually make things get better. And the third idea, which is closely related to those first two, is that the way to do this is through the use of practical reason. Uh, not so much through abstract philosophy, but rather through the use of applied reason, uh, through studying the world, finding out more about it, undertaking experiments, trying out new stuff, seeing how new things work, seeing what you could do to resolve the problems. Applied science and applied philosophy, if you will, which is how they, they thought of it. And that's those kind of ideas that obviously existed before. There have always been human beings who have thought like that. But you first get a kind of really big intellectual critical mass at that time. And then there's the fourth idea, which is the kind of little spice that really gives life to the other three. And that is the idea that the way to actually make the world better, make people happier and better off in this world, uh, and the way to encourage the innovation uh, and experimentation that would do that, the practical science, is through basically leaving people to their own devices. Uh, in other words, not trying to control people or govern them by rules, but rather just let them get on with what they want to do, so long as that doesn't involve something like you know, killing people or uh, taking their stuff. Uh, and that, if you like, 
um, liberty, if you will, in the broader sense of that term, is the other fourth ingredient, and it's the one that is necessary for the other three to actually find full effect. So those are the kind of four interlinked ideas that you see arising in the European Enlightenment, and of course, uh, over in North America, and increasingly spreading to other parts of the world as well as the 19th century went on. Uh, of those four ideas, I think uh, idea one that uh, our, our life in this world matters and we should try to, you know, that, you know, that, that our happiness in the here and now is important, not just our happiness yeah. and our life in the afterlife. But ideas two, three, and four, I wonder uh, about our current commitment to those ideas. Um, do you? Yes, very much so. One of the sort of things I try to argue uh, in my book is that we should not take the modern world for granted. Uh, I think the history of China shows that you can apparently be set on a route of innovation and great prosperity, and then it can be reversed. And I think the great danger and risk in the contemporary world is that either deliberately or more likely accidentally and without meaning to, we may uh, metaphorically kill the goose that get, lays the golden eggs. We may uh, do things that remove that element of dynamism and innovation. We certainly don't seem to have as much of a commitment as we did to leaving people to their own devices. Uh, the idea that we can manage the world, that the world can be regulated, rule governed and controlled by uh, the best and the brightest, as somebody once called them, that certainly seems to be uh, very widespread these days, uh, not least amongst the people who believe themselves to be uh, the seriously smart people who ought to be running the world, of course. Uh, and indeed, the other, the other ones as well, but I think that's where the main threat is. How, how do you maintain sort of a, a confidence in applied reason, in science, in our ability to make the world better? At the, well, same, at the, same, at the same time, that you are showing skepticism toward, you know, elites and central planners. Uh, do, do those things necessarily, you know, go together? How do you maintain one without, yeah. you know, the second? Without the other, indeed. That is the big problem. The problem, the challenge, of course, is to show that reason does not necessarily, being in favor of reason and the use of applied reason, the use of reason to understand the world and work out how to do things, does not necessarily mean that it's, something that should lead to uh, planners or uh, the world being governed by rules laid down from on high. Uh, there's obviously no real incompatibility between believing in reason, believing in the power of the human mind to understand the world, and believing in a decentralized, uh, bottom-up social political order in which individuals use their own small part of reason in cooperation with others, both conscious cooperation and unconscious cooperation uh, to improve the world and make it better. So I think that the challenge really is simply to explain to people uh, and to make them believe that that is possible, uh, to explain to people how it is that you can be strongly committed to rationalism, to the idea of truth, uh, to the idea that there are things that can be discovered that will improve the world, and to at the same time think that this doesn't necessarily imply that there is a group of people who are somehow better informed, more knowledgeable uh, than the rest of us. And the key insight, I think, is the realization, if you like, of the wisdom of crowds, the idea that the species as a whole, human beings as a whole, collectively, are wiser than any individual human being is, because 
so much of the knowledge that we have about the world is scattered and spread uh, in tiny little packets uh, in each individual person out there. And it's only through uh, very widespread social cooperation, the great society, as Friedrich Hayek famously called it, that you can actually utilize all of that knowledge uh, effectively. And that's the kind of point that has to be explained. Now, it, I, I'm the first to admit that that is quite difficult, maybe because as a species, we've spent 98% at least of our uh, existence on this planet living uh, in the Paleolithic, the Old Stone Age, in very small hunter-gatherer bands. And so it could well be that we are biologically or genetically pre-programmed to think in a certain way, which makes it hard for us to grasp that. But hey, we've done pretty well uh, since we uh, moved on from the hunter-gatherer phase of human existence. Uh, so we have to be confident that we can actually explain to people and persuade people that that is the way to go. Sort of one, which I guess I would call maybe contentious question or claim uh, you outline in the book is is the idea that we uh, that we're not living in Western civilization or yes. no longer living in Western civilization. Yep. Uh, uh, why do you think that? And and when did we stop living? In Western right. Civilization? Okay. What, in what sense are we not in Western? Well, start. What is Western civilization? Well, Western civilization is the body of. Uh, ideas, practices, symbols, ways of living, beliefs that gradually grow out of the collapse of the classical civilization of ancient Greece and Rome. And you could say that uh, Western civilization first becomes a clear living entity, if you will, uh, in the 8th century, broadly speaking. Now, at that time, if you, if you were living in uh, Gaul, shall we say, as it was still called at that time, uh, you would obviously have the inheritance of the ancient civilization of the Roman Empire. Uh, you would probably, if you were educated and a landowner, be able to speak and read Latin. Uh, but you were no longer part of the actual culture of the old Roman emperors, whether Christian or pagan. You were part of a new civilization. Now, what I'm arguing is that the modern world first appears uh, within the historic ten uh, territory of Western civilization. But the civilization we now live in is as different fundamentally from the uh, historic classical Western Christian civilization as the uh, emergent Western Christian civilization of that Gallic landowner was from the classical Roman uh, and Greek civilization that he was the heir to. So we still have, if you like, the memory uh, of uh, the classic Western civilization, and we have this enormous inheritance of art, ideas, uh, expressions, ways of life, the like. But I think that the, we've moved on sufficiently, our life and our ways of thinking have been sufficiently transformed that we're in something new. Uh, now, as to when that happened, I think it happened roughly around the turn of the 19th and 20th century. I, I think it's the period between roughly the 1890s and the 1920s, which is the sort of critical transitional point in that regard. What I'd add, by the way, is that this is not just peculiar to um, our own civilization, to Western civilization, because uh, the uh, what we are seeing is a similar process taking place in the other historic civilizations. Uh, and so I think that historic uh, 
Chinese or Hindu civilization are also going the same way. They're also being transformed in that way. Now, whether that means there will be a single global modern civilization uh, is open to doubt. We may well have more than one because of the various different cultural heritages that different forms of modernity will have. But I do think, therefore, that we are no longer living in Western civilization. What is sort of more important in making that determination? Is it sort of how I live my everyday life and that I, um, I can live a lot older, I'm healthier, uh, have more ways to amuse myself? Is it how I live my life? But it, it, that may be very different than how people live their lives 100, 200, 300 years ago. But if, I'm, if, but if my belief system is still similar, the sorts of belief enlightenment belief system, which you just outlined, if that is basically intact, am I not still in the same civilization? Ah, two things about that. Um, the, the first is that the, I would say that that enlightenment belief system is actually part of the modern world, uh, not so much part of classical uh, Western civilization. Okay. A large part of that enlightenment movement in Europe is in fact an attack upon historic uh, Christian civilization. Not all of it, I add, but a significant part of it. Uh, I think actually that both are important, uh, and I think that in both you can see a clear division. Uh, in terms of the way we live, it's not just that we're more comfortable, live longer, have more children survive. Things like the way we actually live in terms of our social structure is quite radically different. For our ancestors, society was not made up of individuals. It was made up of households. That's how they thought of it. And that was also the legal and social reality. And the reason for that was that even if you were a member of the elite, it was very, very difficult to live on your own. You had to live, really, if you were going to survive, uh, as part of a household with other adults and younger people. And that is why in the fairy tales, whenever you know somebody dies, the... Uh, father immediately marries again or the mother marries again uh, nowadays we it is perfectly possible to live on your own and we live in a much more highly individuated individualized society in which the kind of very intense family ties that used to be a central part of human life before have disappeared so it's that is there is a kind of fundamental change in the actual way in which people live the second thing, though, is also about beliefs. I think that in many ways, uh, our mental world is quite different from that of our ancestors. And this is true in terms of things also like cultural inheritance. So, uh, I mean, this is something which I have actually seen progressing very much in my own lifetime. So when I was very young, when I was young, when I was a child, seven or eight, nine, ten, uh, people would hear terms or expressions like the writing on the wall to take up the mantle. And they would know immediately that these were biblical allusions and they would know the biblical allusions uh, that they, you know, the passages in the Bible that they referred to. Uh, they would know, for example, that the term writing on the wall referred to Belshazzar's feast uh, in the book of Daniel. Uh, I doubt that you would find more than about uh, four or 5% of anyone under the age of 30 in Western Europe who has the faintest idea what either of those meant. Mm -hmm. uh, so an enormous part of the cultural heritage of uh, our the Western civilization, if you like, is as distant to the contemporary world 
as, say, the cultural inheritance of ancient Greece or Rome. It's just not part of the mental furniture anymore. And I think we tend to underestimate, educated people in particular, tend to underestimate just how much of a cultural break there has been. Um, as you wrap up here, it's, again, the title of the book is The Wealth Explosion, but there seems to be a growing skepticism that we need to keep the wealth exploding into the future, yeah. that, yes. that economic growth is uh, uh, it's no longer important, it's too costly, um, it's not worth any of the sacrifices that you know, we have to make uh, either for the environment or on our families, uh, sort of these de the, di the dynamism of society where where businesses rise and fall, people lose jobs. It's just all too much and yes. we need to stop. And you can find that, on the, it's not its not a necessarily a, a socialist thing. You can find it on the left, you can find it on the right. Um, just want to get your thoughts on that, whether uh, about whether we still need to, whether, whether progress is something we should still want. Yeah, that uh, you're absolutely right. This is a very widespread uh, belief. And it, as you say, it, it's wrong to identify that with a particular part of the political spectrum. In fact, historically, the kind of view you describe has been more associated, if anything, with the right than the left. It just happens to be a fact at the moment that it tends to be associated with the left. But I think it's a very widespread one. It's the idea that what we need is, as somebody put it, a time out from progress. Right. Uh, that basically, surely we've got enough now. Can't we just uh, coast as long as we are and not have all this constant innovation uh, and turmoil? Well, I'm afraid my answer to that is very categorically that we can't do that if we want to keep the stuff that we have. In other words, we, there is no option to, uh, for us to simply live at the way we are and continue the way we are at our current level without continuing innovation. The reason for that is this. In order to maintain the way we live now, you have to constantly replenish and renew the capital stock the physical infrastructure, the uh, machinery, literal machinery in many cases, of course, that is needed to sustain the way we live. And because of things like the way in which a lot of resources are consumed, the only way in which you can do that is by continuing to innovate. Uh, if you try, if you stop innovating, what you will find is that you will not be able to maintain that, if you like, capital stock of existing civilization and it will gradually decay and break down. Not catastrophically, uh, but it will gradually slowly decay and break down. And as it does, of course, the level of production will fall, which means it will become even more difficult to maintain. And before you know where you are, you go through what the historians call a simplification process, which is what the Roman world, for example, went through in the fifth and sixth centuries, or the Mayan, classic Mayan civilization went through in the 12th century. And when that happens, over the space of about 100 to 150 years, you gradually go from a highly urbanized, civilized society to a much more dispersed, much more rural, much poorer, uh, and in many ways, culturally, much more backward society. Uh, that kind of thing has happened many, many times historically. And if we do not keep on innovating, uh, if we don't keep ahead of the curve of entropy, if you will, that is what will happen to us. So if you want to keep the way we are and the good things that modernity has brought, there's no alternative to continuing to innovate. My guest today has been Stephen Davies, author of The Wealth Explosion, The Nature and Origins of Modernity. Stephen, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. City.